Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters. And today I'm joined by Dr. Janet Schloss. Welcome along, Janet. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's so good to have you here. I think for many people listening, they probably already uh, are familiar with your work. But for those of you who don't know you, uh, you've been in practice for over 20 years uh, as a nutritionist, and you've completed your doctorate at the School of Medicine at the University of Queensland through the Princess Alexandra Hospital. You've also been a lecturer at the Endeavour College of Natural Health, which was also the Australian College of Natural Medicine, uh, and you were there for over 14 years. You're the clinical trials manager at the Office of Research, um, and now you're also doing some work at the Southern Cross University. Your main specialty, which most people are probably familiar with, is treating people with cancer, so you're really focused around assisting patients who are already undergoing medical treatment. You've got over 40 publications and you've got a particular interest in research on complementary medicines to assist the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. You've also spoken extensively throughout Australia and overseas and you've got a very strong passion for your profession. So you're very well accomplished. Have I uh, covered everything there? I I think (laughs) I I have. I hope I have. Yes, more than enough, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Look, uh, I've sort of been following your work for a number of years and, you know, when we talk about someone who uh, is highly experienced in the management of people with cancer, your name immediately comes to mind. So do you want to give the listeners a little bit of background about sort of how you got into treating people or managing um, cancer with patients and... What has um, occurred over the last few years in regards to your research? Because you've been doing some pretty interesting things. Well, I think it's interesting. I'm glad other people think it's interesting as well. But um, to answer your first question, how I got into it, like when I was studying to be a naturopath and nutritionist, like a long time ago, I have quite a number of family members uh, who have had cancer. And one of them was my auntie. And she started seeing this practitioner who was uh, up north uh, toward Bundaberg and he had no credentials whatsoever. And she basically told her not to have surgery or chemotherapy or anything like that and gave her all of these different potions. And she ended up dying a pretty bad death, basically, and it it just continued to grow. So it was pretty horrific. And that sort of put me down a path going, you know, this is not right. We need to have very qualified practitioners in this area, you know, that can give these people the right guidance. So it became very passionate uh, as well as, like I said, other family members. But then once I graduated, I was able to get out and I was uh, I got a position working part-time with uh, Henry Osiki at Orthoplex and writing technical information and, and books and stuff like that. And I said to him, you know, why don't we write a book just specifically on cancer? So we did. And that's, again, where I gained a lot of information and met 
a lot of different uh, oncologists in part of my work from there as well, and it's just progressed. So that's a very quick overview of how I got into it. <laughs> um, on the other side of things, the, I, I think some of the research that I've been doing lately is very interesting. Uh, my PhD was looking at uh, chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy and B12, but now I've sort of progressed into the cannabis world and I really love it. So um, I just we've just completed and hopefully going to get published soon our results of our medicinal cannabis and glioblastoma brain tumour trial that I did uh, with Charlie Teo. And we, to me, we've actually got some really good results and really I think cannabis can play a big part in so many different areas and, it, and it's a, an area that I'm passionately following and continuing. So, yeah, you brought up some really interesting points there. The cancer textbook that many uh, nutritionists and naturopaths and herbalists may be familiar with, and it's the one that I'm hope I'm thinking of, is the, <laughs> um, the, the importance of clinical nutrition and the prevention and treatment of cancer. Is that the textbook you're talking about or is it no, a different this was one? a way long term ago. So in 2001, we did the first edition. In 2002 was the second and it was cancer, nutrition, and biochemical approach. And that then got uh, rewritten and put into what the book you're now talking about. I see. So you had developed the first iteration of that uh, book that most people are using now. Yes, a long time Fantastic. ago. But, you know, Fantastic. Things, things progress quite rapidly in this space, so it does need to be updated. So they did the right thing. Absolutely. You've, you've done so much. Um it's yeah really really important that we have people like yourself um working in that field because you're doing a lot of sort of integrative work as well you mentioned you've been doing some work there with charlie teo around glioblastoma what was it like working with charlie charlie is a really lovely person you know i think he gets such a bad rap uh from a lot of his colleagues and stuff like that and what they say but him personally he is a really nice person he really does care and he, like, he's open to opportunities that may make a difference for people who have brain tumours. So he was great to work with. We ran the trial out of his um, clinic at the Prince of Wales uh, Randwick Hospital and uh, we had fantastic dealings with him. We had no problems whatsoever. I was going to say that research that you're doing was specifically for glioblastoma? Yes. So the one of the most, you know, I would say the, the most aggressive brain tumour in adults. Uh, and, you know, our stats for brain cancer in Australia and worldwide are absolutely horrific. You know, it's the only cancer in three decades that's made no pro- progression in treatment and, and survival outcomes. No, no other cancer has that. And so it, it, it's something that if we can make a difference, to the survival rate and treatment options and quality of life of these people, you know, it gives them hope. And, you know, I've seen the differences that it makes and I believe in it. So why hasn't there been very much research or, or clinical advancements in the management of glioblastoma? Is it because it's just so difficult to treat or it's just it's a rare type of cancer and there hasn't been much uh, attention given to it from a research perspective. Why is that? 
Yeah, it's an interesting space. It's actually not a rare cancer. It's actually quite a common cancer. And there's over a thousand, in Australia, usually there's around a thousand people each year diagnosed with GBM. And I think that the hard part is, is that this type of cancer comes back, like there's, I would say, 95% of the time. So when, the, when you get diagnosed with a glioblastoma, you know, they basically tell you, well, it's going to come back. And you have about, you know, maybe a year to 18 months to live because that's what their, their actual stats are from it. The hard part out of all of it is that, you know, treatments to get into the brain by the blood-brain barrier or by radiation is limited. So, you know, there's only a couple of chemotherapy drugs that cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, radiation, depending on where it is, is difficult. The other thing is, is that glioblastoma has legs. It's not like this beautiful little contained round object that they can actually remove. So it has all these little legs that can go into everywhere. So it's very hard for surgeons to actually remove the whole tumour. And that way they can say they can debulk it by, you know, 80% up to 95%, but there's always parts of it that they can't remove. And that increases the risk of it. So there are some of the limitations for it. So that it's about coming up with uh, drugs, and I'll call cannabis a drug, even though it's a plant, but we're using it as a drug, um, that does actually cross the blood-brain barrier and does have an effect, uh, which is one of the, the reasons why I think there hasn't been a lot of research into glioblastoma is because there's very little uh, drugs that do actually cross the, cross the barrier. And the other thing is that we need to also start looking at different ways of application, of getting getting past that blood-brain barrier. Maybe it would be nasal application or different things as well. Everything you've been saying there has been reminding me of a family member that has been living with glioblastoma for a number of years and she was actually diagnosed at a point in time where she had two very young children. Yeah. I believe they're under the age of five. The cancer was in a part of her brain that was extremely difficult to get to with surgery. And essentially, long story short, it was a matter of get your affairs in order. There's not a lot that we can actually do for you. They did attempt a surgery, but they couldn't remove uh, the bulk of the tumor. And it didn't look good. So I think at that point in time, she had spoken with her doctors around the use of cannabis and they essentially said, this is, we're probably going back close to 10 years now. But at that point in time, they they essentially said to her, we can't recommend it for you. Um, you know, it's, it's really up to you whether or not you choose to do it. So she did actually um, start making her own cannabis oil and I think from the time she started using that cannabis oil to the time she had her next scan, the tumor had shrunk considerably. And then the next scan after that, uh, essentially, they couldn't find the tumor in her brain. So I'm not sure if that's a common thing that happens when people are using this or if she just got really lucky, but she seems to have been able to get to a point now where she's living a relatively normal life and she attributes a lot of that. Uh, benefit to to the um, cannabis oil that she was using. So I'm not sure if um, the clients that you're seeing are getting similar results. 
You know, that's a fantastic story, and I love hearing that. The problem is, is that we still don't know why some people respond really well to it and get great results, and then other people don't. And that's why we still need so much more research. And this is, there's been so much opposition uh, to to cannabis in the cancer space, but now that's starting to change. You know, it's been always around symptomology of people rather than, you know, treatment or uh, an adjunct to treatment. But it's still going to be a long way because, you know, a lot of the oncologists uh, are now being faced with this and, and, and surgeons, I would say that as well. And they have to, we start having to do trials and that's the only way that they will actually get past this. And at the moment they still can't say, oh, we're going to recommend this because you have glioblastoma. You know, we, we still don't have enough evidence even though we've had very positive results from the, the trials that have actually been conducted. But, but from my perspective, what I've found is that some people respond really well and they have these amazing results, but then others don't. And that, that to me is really interesting. How do we know who's going to be responding and who doesn't? So we, it's an area that we're actually looking into and how we can find that information out. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing different PK-type work and looking at different biomarkers that may be able to tell us who's going to respond better to this. Do you know why people have a higher risk of getting glioblastoma? Um, I remember listening to a presentation that Charlie Teo was doing, uh, I think at a university in Sydney with another um, professor. And I remember this so well because I was completely blown away by one of the main reasons he said that people get brain cancer. And it was from the use of mobile phones. And I remember him mentioning that your risk is increased significantly if you're considered to be a um, high-use mobile phone user. And I think it was only around half an hour of mobile phone use per day, which was considered high-use. Are you familiar with, with that information? And do you know of any other things that can increase your risk of glioblastoma? It's, it's really interesting. I am very aware of that and I'm very aware that Charlie totally believes that. And the hard part is, is that, you know, he's up against opposition from mobile phone companies and a whole range of other people in technology to say that's not actually the case. But um, Reality is I think that mobile phone use when it's actually at your ear versus being away from uh, right near your head uh, does have a play. There has been some research on it as well uh, with people sleeping with mobile phones near them um, that increase, that has been said to increase the risk. But there's been no definite uh, re- like correlation. So what I'll say with that, I think, think that more research is required, which is always such a researcher thing to say. But I think that there's definitely a link and I think that there's a risk factor of having mobile phones near your head a lot of the day and particularly at night time. As for other risk factors for glioblastoma, nobody knows. There is some genetic testing being done at the moment. They do believe that there's some form of genetic predisposition in some people, but there's no other real risk factors that have come out. date which is actually quite sad because essentially that means that we're not sure how to prevent prevent it it. correct we don't know how to prevent it 
and we're also then not sure how to treat it effectively, which is why I guess you were so interested in the cannabis because it is a potential treatment that can be used. That's correct. I definitely think that it has a high potential. And there's when you know when I first started into, to looking into cannabis and I was looking at all the research, there is a plethora of in vitro information, and particularly around glioblastoma. And it was one of the only like real studies that had actually started there with a, um, one over, like Gomez over in Spain, who actually put cannabis directly into the tumour and first said the nine people, which is pretty amazing to get the ability to do that. And it really interested me that this has a potential treatment, like all the, the, the in vitro ones in particular show extremely good signs that this could actually work. And the other thing is, is that, there has already been studies done with GW Pharmaceutical over in UK showing that, you know, it actually potentiates the survival rate from people in conjunction with temozolomide, which is the main chemotherapy drug. So not only is that could be an adjunct, but I knew no other people using it as its own as well. And without having to have some of the, the more like destructive treatments, I guess is one way of putting it, but it's, a, it's an option. But what the, I think the biggest thing is, is that we need to know, like most other things, who's going, who's going to benefit and who's, who won't benefit as much. So you mentioned earlier that it's actually quite efficacious at getting into the blood-brain barrier. Why is it so good at doing that? Because cannabis is uh, an oil-based thing, so it's very uh, fat-soluble, and so it's easy to actually cross over. The other thing is, is that obviously cannabis works on the endocannabinoid system. So we produce naturally endocannabinoids every day that do cross the blood-brain barrier. So it has an easy access into the actual brain. And we have a lot of our CB1 receptors are located within the brain, which is why THC actually binds a lot to that. And they get that psychoactive or, you know, stoned, I guess, type feeling. A lot of the medicinal cannabis in the oils don't actually do that stoned type feeling um, if it's done correctly. But it can make you feel quite relaxed. It can make you feel drowsy. And it definitely has that effect within the brain itself. So and that's one of the reasons that it said, like, there's not many things that can actually cross the blood-brain barrier, and that includes nutrients. You know, not all nutrients cross into the blood-brain barrier either. So having something that is fat-soluble that does actually cross and has a potential for benefit, you know, you can't go past that. Is the psychoactive component part of the therapeutic effect in your opinion or can we actually just go with some type of therapies which remove the THC and just use the CBD? See, this is, that we, this is a, a big discussion point in a lot of people who are looking into the cannabis and Part of what we, we realise is that we, all the side effects mainly are from the THC component. However, a lot of the in vitro work actually show that it's the THC that has some of the anti-cancer activity. But if you actually use the CBD with the THC, the CBD can mitigate or, or downregulate a lot of those what we consider psychoactive type responses in people. So it's not like you're smoking like an indica bud or anything like that. Most of it, what we're looking at is a whole plant extract from a sativa plant. So it's not just the, the flowers, it's actually, you know, all the leaves and stuff like that that are actually used within this to give us all the extra cannabinoids. 
that that come into play. And you know what? I think we don't even know. Like there's 140 different other cannab- cannabinoids that are in cannabis as well as like other 300 different constituents that come into play with all your terpenes and stuff that you will also have of benefit, which is then like obviously your entourage effect, which it's so funny, entourage effect is actually uh, put into cannabis, but it's every herb has an entourage effect, which is why you can't isolate anything. But to answer you, you I've sort of gone around in a couple of different circles there, but um, I still think that we, we that in certain situations we can use a high dominancy CBD with a low THC, but if you're wanting an anti-cancer type effect, then you really need a one-to-one ratio of CBD to THC and slight and slowly titrate up to tolerance, so you don't get any of those adverse events or, or um, like oh, uh, psychoactive is not one of the words they really like, but um, brain-changing type effects. Because when we think of all of the herbs that we've been trained to use in herbal medicine we talk about the synergistic effect so it's important for us to use the whole plant or the parts of the plant that have been shown to be the most beneficial or medicinal but for some reason there just seems to be this uh, thought process around cannabis that we can extract one component out of it and it's going to give us all of the beneficial effects so hearing you say that actually no we need to use the whole plant really is a a nice thing to hear because I do think from the research that I've read using that whole plant component is probably where we get obviously that synergistic effect and then a better therapeutic value from that plant. Oh, totally. You know, when we're looking at the literature again, you can see the difference between the synthetic plants, um, like cannabis uh, drugs that they actually use versus the whole plant drugs. And you can see that the entourage effect of the whole plant makes a big difference. And that's where you can't just single out one thing. And as obviously as a herbalist myself too, I believe in that whole plant aspect. And you can't just isolate one. I remember um, going to this lecture from a professor over in, from Germany. Uh, he's a psychiatrist and he was investigating the St. John's Ward. And obviously at that stage, this is like I'm talking probably 18 years ago now, but he looked at it, so he was trying to isolate, you know, the main components and see what neurotransmitters they actually worked. And what he found was that when he isolated it, it hardly stimulated any of the neurotransmitters at all. But when he actually used, like, and he had four different types of, of isolates that he used, but when he used the, the whole plant extract, it actually increased the serotonergic, the dopaminergic pathways um, and GABA pathways quite exponentially. And he, as a pharmacist and um, professor, he just, just couldn't get his head around the fact that only the whole plant that did that rather than the isolates. And that goes for every herb as far as I'm concerned. I agree. I think we need to get back to our uh, fundamental underpinnings of herbal medicine and rather than us trying to pinpoint or isolate the component that's actually having the effect, well, it's all of those components combined that are having the effect and I don't think that any amount of research is ever going to be able to understand exactly why that is the case. No, I totally agree and when if you're going to bring it back to cannabis, it's actually one of the reasons a lot of doctors find this you know, frustrating 
to actually dose and to look after because it's not something that they can say, well, you take this dose for this amount of time for this type of effect. You know, it doesn't work like that when you're looking at a herb. And that makes dosing very difficult. And it's one of the reasons why there isn't no set dosage regime. Janet, there's a number of naturopaths and herbalists who are actually involved in the research of cannabis. Uh, One name that comes to mind is Justin Sinclair. I know that he's been sort of focusing some of his research in that area. What I've always wondered is, though, why are naturopaths and herbalists actually involved in the research side of things when we not we may not be able to ever prescribe it because there are a lot of legalities limiting the use of cannabis in Australia? I totally agree. And I love um, Justin Sinclair's work. Actually, he's a good friend of mine and he's been doing research into this area for like 20 years. But one of the main reasons why I think that Justin, myself and quite a number of other um, herbalists and naturopaths are doing research in this area is because we actually understand herbs. We have the, you know, the background uh, knowledge of how herbal medicine is worked and how we do dosages and what research is actually needed to do it versus, say, a, a pharmacist or doctor researcher who likes to isolate components and then check that out, which is a very scientific basis. So to me it makes sense as a naturopath and herbalist that we do some of the main results and research on these particular plants moving forward that can then um, give evidence and information to to doctors and to pharmacists and stuff like that who are actually prescribing and you never know like I think someday that we might be able to prescribe CBD but not THC and I'm really happy with our regulation in Australia that it is distributed by pharmacy that pharmacy has regulation over it and that there are ways particularly with THC that not everybody can actually get it you know, compared to like Canada and America where you can just go in and just buy it um, if you have like a, a tag or whatever. But I still believe that we ha- are the best placed people to do research with a herbal medicine that is a drug. What's the best way for people to be getting the active components from the cannabis? Is it in an oil extraction, you mentioned before that smoking it may not necessarily be so useful. Um, are we using dried herb? What's the best way to administer this? You know, this this is a really interesting question and the answer to that is actually quite complicated because a lot of the time we don't know. There might be particular ways of uh, taking cannabis that will benefit a particular condition or symptom you know, I said about smoking, but vaping is really good for uh, intermittent pain relief. So there's a lot of that will actually be of assistance because so, it gives them more of an instant response versus an oil, which is more for like low-grade chronic pain because it takes you know anywhere between two to three hours to peak within that person's system. So other people may get benefit from actually like juicing up the leaves and, and flowers and drinking that. Uh, depending on what symptoms that they actually have. So at this stage, it really comes down to the person, the, what they're wanting to achieve with the actual cannabis um, and how we, uh, what, what method that we actually implement it. So as I said, it's a really good question and maybe you know, using a few different variations of that may help. And I haven't talked about like topical application or suppositories or um, I said possibly nasal or 
or your or your oral or buccal absorption. So there's so many different aspects to it. But I think it's great. We just have to find out what's going to work and for the, the right symptom or, or condition. So you have a client coming in to see you who's got uh, a cancer. How do you know that cannabis might actually be a benefit to them? At what point do we say to our clients, look, this is something that you need to explore with your doctor? So um, one of the things I have with cancer is that every cancer is a different disease and everybody is a different person and individual and that not one thing is always the best for each person. So the way that I work is, number one, is where they are uh, at, what staging that they're actually at, what type of cancer that they actually have, what treatment they're being given because at this stage we still need a lot of um, PK work to find out, you know, what interactions that it has. We know that there's a lot of different immunotherapies that it can't be used with. There's certain medication that it, it can't be used with. It can't be used with people who have high liver or uh, like high liver enzymes or kidney damage or have had myocardial infarctions or anything like that. So there's we, we start to know what cohort can and can't use or if they've had a bad experience on cannabis in the past or they have an addictive type behaviour. However, in saying that, cannabis is not addictive. And people think that it, it may be, but it's actually not addictive. Uh, which is a, a good thing over opioids and, and some of the other medication. So when a patient actually comes in um, to see me uh, who has cancer, and it's not something that I will recommend straight away. Um, a lot of people have now come because of my, my research and I guess that the fact that it's out there will come and ask me lots of questions about cannabis. And I don't always recommend it to everybody for, for their type of cancer, and it also depends on their timing of it. And I don't believe that it's of benefit for every type of cancer either. So that, that I think we still need to have a lot of evidence to find out, like I said, which ones that it will. But I do believe that there's quite a number that can actually have benefit. So to answer your question, it, it, I don't know that I'm going to win and how I'm going to recommend cannabis to everybody um, until I actually know more about their story. There's so many other uses for cannabis isn't there most people consider it to be used for either shrinking the size of the tumor or for reducing pain but there's also lots of other amazing benefits like it being a digestive stimulant because a lot of people who are undergoing chemotherapy have muscle wastage and nausea and they made it actually feel like eating so cannabis could help there right Absolutely. And actually one of the best things about cannabis, and particularly when you're looking at THC, is that it helps with sleep. And sleep-related problems, especially with people with cancer, is major. Um, And when you're looking at brain tumour people, you're looking at them being on dexmethasone and actually quite a number of different ones that affects their sleep. So helping them get a good night's sleep uh, makes a big difference to how they feel, like it increases their cognitive cognitive ability it increases their their energy it you know it has this whole follow-on effect but you know it's not only just sleep it's not only just pain it's not only stimulating the appetite it actually works on like the cbd component works on your immune system you know that actually upregulates to help with decreasing anxiety it actually helps with relaxation so i think cannabis has like a plethora of different uh actions that can be of benefit to people, but not to everybody. 
Have you found that many of your clients are resistant to wanting to use cannabis because it does have a bit of a bad rap or it has been given a bad rap in the past? I remember back in the 80s, there was an ad going around on TV and you might actually remember this as well. And the ad was, I think it was um, of a guy who had some cannabis and he became really erratic and he was becoming violent and he was causing problems in the in the public. And there was this public health message that if you're on using cannabis, you can become a, a violent offender or a violent person. So it's sort of gone from being a drug that you don't want to be associated with at all and it could be seen to be causing a lot of um, negative effects. Do you think that there's still bad connotations surrounding the use of cannabis for some people? Uh, you know, I, I found that ad, I know exactly what you're talking about, I thought that's absolutely hilarious because this is the one drug that does not cause that. It has the opposite effect. <laughs> it puts most people to sleep and makes them more relaxed. It's a completely different um, kettle of fish if you start talking about methamphetamine, um, which is, it has more of that effect. I do think, however, that there is a, a stigmatism associated with cannabis and that's where there is a, a lot of, uh, actually not a lot, but there's a certain amount of people who are resistant to wanting to take it or to try it. And the stigmatism is more around the fact that it was made illegal and about people smoking and or they've seen, you know, people smoking it and that makes triggered schizophrenia or something like that. However, I can tell you a couple of a number of my patients uh, that I've worked in conjunction with doctors who had that same feeling and they didn't want to tell anybody that they were actually taking it uh, for different reasons, you know, for different things like ankylosing spondylitis or fibromyalgia or stuff like that. And they were finding benefit, but they found it difficult to be able to tell people that they were taking it, and particularly the older generation. And that stigmatism is, is hard to get past. But what's, that's where we need to make a very big distinction that this is a medicine. And it's a herbal medicine. And it's been around for like so long, you know, starting in China. And it was the American people who actually banned it and was given it the stigmatism. Before then, it was only found to be of benefit. And we still need to, that needs to be worked on a lot because it, it's still quite strong in the community. And that was my next question. How do you think we actually overcome that stigma? I think overcoming the stigma is, is number one, is educating people about it. And when I talk to people about it now um, and explain how it is a herbal medicine, this is how it's used, the problem there, it's not like you're smoking uh, things or having that, that instant high that you see. So it's just like you're taking any other herbal medicine. And you, we're using it in a slow titration so we don't get any of the side, potential side effects that you could, could get from it. And once they actually get wrapped their head around that, it makes a big difference. But the problem comes down to that, that you know, you can have one person or a few people telling, telling that, but how you educate everybody. The other stigmatism is and the issues are with the doctors you know, you've got doctors who are um, a bit worried about actually starting to prescribe it because then they're going to be seen as these cannabis um, doctors that people will then start coming and asking them for it and they don't know enough about it anyway. So they don't want to then prescribe it to their patients. You've also got people who are in the, the medical profession and outside of it as well, you know, saying quite a lot of negative things about it because 
They don't want it to become mainstream. But the problem is, is it's it's going to become mainstream. It already is mainstream now. And so it's more about let's understand what this actually is. Let's get a grasp on it, that this is actually a herbal medicine and it's a drug and that we're using it for specific reasons. You know, this is completely different to recreational use. So if there's somebody who actually wants to get access to cannabis, what's the best way for them to get it? Because I'm not sure if every GP can actually prescribe it can they or is it a specialist type of medication at this stage any gp can actually prescribe it any gp any medical specialist can actually prescribe it's if they choose to do so or not um so if someone is wanting to have or or gain cannabis uh legally and i prefer the legal over black market is that they need to number one find someone who is willing to prescribe it so they have to then go in and they talk to them. They do have to meet the regulations, and it's much easier now to actually gain legal access than what it used to be. Um, you do have uh, particular people who are used to prescribing, and they will actually get you know a quicker permission than say a, a GP or someone who has never prescribed before. But they, the government actually helps them out, so that's not the issue. So if, you, if you're wanting to do it, you actually have reasons to to want to use cannabis. Find somebody who is actually able to prescribe it or willing to prescribe it to you. Some of those uh, specialist GPs do actually want a referral from your GP or a medical specialist, so you will actually have to ask that. But it's becoming uh, a lot easier and a lot more people who are actually now prescribing it. It's really good to hear that it's becoming easier for people to get access to because I know that things like chronic pain can be really difficult to manage a lot of the pharmaceutical drugs that are available currently don't even really touch the sides of a lot of people's pain so have you found cannabis to be sort of the most effective measure at reducing pain or are there other things that we can use now you know what pain is a really interesting thing and it is like you said it's really difficult to to manage um and Cannabis d- does, in uh, a number of cases, work exceptionally well for pain. But then you've got other people where it doesn't have to, does not touch the sides for their pain. Um, and there's still this debate at the moment about cannabis and pain with some of the, the medical specialists. But I think that it does actually work for pain, um, both nerve pain, low chronic pain. Uh, some of the acute pain is where you will have the vaping side that does actually help. And it doesn't have that addiction and side effects that, you know, a lot of the opioids that they actually use. Some of the time, so they can actually, depending on the person, you know, have a a mix between, say, using cannabis and reduction in their pain meds, but they find what works for them. So pain is so hard, it's so easier said than done. But you've got a whole things that affected pain expectancy, beliefs, you know, how long since they've actually been dealing with this, their quality of life. So it's not just one thing that you can actually measure. Right. And in practice, are you using cannabis by itself or are you incorporating it with various other herbs and, and supplements as well, not just for the pain but as an overall holistic approach? Have you found that there is a specific herb or specific nutrient that actually complements cannabis quite well? there's a number of things that complement cannabis but yes uh so in 
in clinical practice, I definitely use combinations of both different herbs and nutrients to help with people's pain, depending on what has actually caused it or, you know, where it's actually coming from uh, for them. And uh, very rarely do I use just cannabis by itself. Sorry, I went on to the medical side before, but on the nutritional and herbal side, I mean, some of the things I use uh, quite extensively is boswellia and turmeric and ginger um, in different combinations or uh, PEA for some people instead of cannabis um, just to see how they actually react. And all of that can be can be great. But then, you know, you've got some of the things from, say, let's do chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy or diabetic neuropathy, and you'll find that like things like B1 or lipoic acid or acetyl-L-carnitine uh, will be more effective in regards to that or B12. So I think it's always an individual case that cannabis can play a part in regards to what actually works together. Again, it's very individual. I think it depends on the person, their situation, um, and what their body actually requires at the time, which is, you know, that's how we work. We're naturopaths. We're very holistic and nothing stays the same all the time. Do you know if all cannabis is the same or are there different Mm -hmm. strains of cannabis that actually (laughs) have different effects for, say, the nervous system and then another form may actually have a a better effect on the gastrointestinal system and, and so on and so forth? See, this again is a really interesting question because you have all these different cultivars and it depends on where the, like the mother comes from uh, for the, the actual plant. And um, every crop can actually be different and they can have, depending on their growing environment and what actually happens and from there, you, know, you can have a ratios of different cannabinoids and things that come out of that particular batch. And that's one of the hard things when you're producing uh, cannabis products is that consistency of it. And in saying that, you know, it can all vary. Didi Madiri, who is uh, in Israel, is probably like one of is the leading person, I think, in cannabis. And they were doing some research over there in Technion for uh, child epilepsy. And it was working exceptionally well. And then when they introduced a new batch, suddenly it wasn't working. And they ran all these tests and basically found that there's one, there's one in particular, uh, cannabinoid, wasn't there anymore. And that must have been what was actually working. So not only can it be like you can use the same plant, get the same patch, but it re- that variation makes a big difference for like, sim- like anything that you're actually using it for, for, for symptoms or for uh, treatment or anything. So the answer to that is absolutely yes. And the other thing is then we also need to find out, you know, what's the ratio? Do we have low... Uh, THC, high, it's a high CBD dominant. Do we do a one-to-one ratio? Do we do a higher ratio, four-to-one or 20-to-one of, of different THC to CBD? But we're now also seeing, you know, more dominant type um, cannabinoids also coming out. So it, it, at this stage, it, it's a, a really hard type stage to quantify. And even like I said, batch-to-batch can actually be very different. So... Something we are still working on. <laughs> and is that something that the medical fraternity is aware of or are they just sort of thinking along the lines of, well, we just give cannabis and it's all the same or, or uh, people like yourself and Justin actually making them aware that, no, actually, you need to be strain specific here? There's a lot of people that are making them aware. I think that there's certain medical fraternities uh, that, you know, uh, I'm sure 
of that, but most of them are actually aware that there are different strains and that you do need to have a look at different ratios. And that's one of the things that why they don't want to prescribe because it is quite daunting. And the ones who are prescribing are still learning. And that's not just here in Australia, that's all over the world. You you mentioned earlier as well in regards to um, chemotherapy-induced neuropathy and diabetic neuropathy that cannabis works particularly well. So it's actually got a really broad um, therapeutic use. Can you think of any other instances where you actually might um, want to use cannabis? Because most people, when they think about it, they think pain and they think um, using it to help with the management of cancer. But things like chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, that's so debilitating on people's lives. And I know that they try and use things like um, acupuncture, for example, which can help. So it's not just necessarily the um, the cancer itself. It can be the side effects of treatment that cannabis is good for as well, right? Absolutely. You know, and that's where I think it plays a, a major part. We, we, we're starting to put it into little boxes. And what I will say is that's not it's not good for everything, but I think that, that it has a potential benefit for a lot of different areas. And we can't just say, okay, it's just for cancer or it's just for epilepsy or it's just for pain or um, that type of thing. I think that's where the, there's a more research coming out. And, you know, it can help with side effects from different medication. It can actually help with different conditions you know there's a lot of research now going going into like Tourette's syndrome schizophrenia you know which it can actually um, cause but can actually be of benefit as well um Parkinson's disease MS multiple sclerosis sorry or like uh, there's a whole range of other disease states that it's now starting to be looked at as as a potential treatment and that to me is actually quite exciting and we need to not just put it in a little box and say, well, it's only for this type area. We, we definitely can't do that. You know, I think that it has immune modulating type effects, which is why it can actually help in certain autoimmune diseases. So we, 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 there's so much more research that, that can be done on this particular plant. It's amazing. Speaking about the research side of things, if there are students uh, who have not yet graduated or there are clinicians who want to do research in this area, a couple of points here. So A, how do they get involved in it? And B, are there uh, any research facilities that are better than others? Where do people really need to sort of do their inquiries? Is there a specific university in Australia currently leading the way? Yeah, there's actually... Uh three or four of them that are actually leading the way in cannabis research. Um, probably the most well-known one is the Lambert Institute uh, at Sydney University uh, who were, like, benefited from a philanthropist. There's uh, the NICM, which is Justin Sicklett, uh, leading the way there with uh, the cannabis area for the Western Sydney University. There's ACAR at New, New South Wales um, who uh, they have, like, they've got national funding to run a cannabis um, research from there. Uh, there's some also down in Melbourne that they can actually approach. SCU now um, actually has uh, quite a lot of cannabis. They have plant science actually run uh, and evaluating a lot of the cannabis that's actually there. And now they've got me, obviously, as well. We can run clinical trials. So 
there's actually quite a number of different universities who are quite specific in cannabis and the studies that uh, that go on there. So if clinicians or students who are wanting to study want to get into the cannabis space, you know, you'd be wanting to look at those particular universities to maybe do honours or masters and stuff like that. And, you know, even getting to a position like I know the Lambert and ACAR are offering um, PhD uh, specific scholarships uh, there on cannabis. If students uh, or clinicians are interested in getting some additional information, are there any resources that you would recommend for them to read? Any standout books or journal articles or papers? There's so many journal articles and papers on cannabis and coming out quite dramatically. For people to actually get a better understanding and stuff of it, I would actually do one of the cannabis courses. Um, United in Compassion. I would actually contact, and that's Lucy Haslam, and they have a lot of different resources on theirs. Uh, NIM, who's the, I did, that was the other one down in Melbourne, they have some resources on their website, so does ACAR. Um, They actually have resources as well. And uh, David Caldecott ends up actually run, I think, some very educational courses. As does over in Perth, there's a place, um, a medicinal cannabis a group and health house actually run uh, webinars and uh, courses of education for it. Now that's with Charlene and Paul Maver, and they're fantastic. So going to any of those are definitely going to be of benefit. I mean, there's other ones too uh, that are run by some of the, the more clinicians, two doctors, but for uh, students in who are doing naturopathy or nutrition and stuff like that, I'll be more likely to do something with like uh, Charlene and Paul or. Um, the United in Compassion response. Thanks for that, Janet. So the last question that I want to pose to you today is where do you actually see cannabis use and cannabis research actually heading in the next five years? Lovely question. Um, I see CBD will be available on uh, three pharmacy and at you know, next year it goes down to a Schedule 3 from Schedule 4, so pharmacists can actually uh, prescribe it to people. Um, so it's already on the way down, and I think in five years' time it will be uh, easily available on the shelves of pharmacies. Uh, THC, I think, will still be uh, scheduled 8 um, and be regulated, but the research uh, is going ahead in, in massive amounts. However, you know, everything takes time. And I think that in five years' time, we'll still be conducting clinical trials. We'll have a few more indications that we can actually get it prescribed for. But as a drug, it it takes a lot longer to get the the proper research to actually have it on a PBS, which is where I'm hoping it will be. Can't see that happening in five years' time, which will reduce the cost. Uh, Maybe in some areas it will be on a PBS. But I would say in 10 years' time, it definitely will be. But I'm hoping, you know, with Australia becoming more uh, prolific in growing cannabis and producing and manufacturing it here, the cost of legal cannabis will drop dramatically and the access will become easier. And that's where I see it in five years' time. There's so many unknowns about cannabis by the sounds of it, but I think that's what really makes it exciting is that there's so much to still discover about this particular herb and it sounds like from the discussion that we've had today that the 
potential uses and benefits of this herb are almost endless. You would think so. I definitely think that there's a, a huge uh, benefit in so many areas that it can have. There's certainly areas that it won't, um, but I think one of the main, main areas that we need to focus on too is why some people benefit and some people don't. So I find that very interesting. Janet, thank you so much for coming along today. I really appreciate your time. I've learned so much from you in the last hour. Are there any final uh, comments or things that you would uh, like to leave the listeners before we wrap it up today? Firstly, thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, I would, if I want to leave it on anything, I think that people should learn about cannabis. I'm hoping cannabis also comes into the curriculum curriculum for naturopathy very shortly because it, it, it is an essential herb and one we definitely need to know about. And uh, if you get the opportunity, definitely go to one of the courses and learn more about it because it's not going away. It's definitely staying here and I'm excited about it. Thank you so much, Janet. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Now for anyone listening today who would like to contact Janet to find out more information about her research or maybe you'd like to get in contact with her in regards to her clinical practice. You can actually head on over to her website, which is janetschloss.com, which is J-A-N-E-T-S-C-H-L-O-S-S.com. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.